Today's In Pursuit of Luxury podcast is slightly different. I'm not in conversation with our guests, but our guests are chatting to each other, Father Andrew O'Connor and Professor Chris Berry. They will be discussing the vice and virtues of luxury, and so I will hand over to them. I'm entering into the discussion not as an academic, but as somebody who's a, I'm a Catholic priest who knows something about the luxury market and, and all the, uh, the problems of uh, cultivating the work that's associated with it. So um, what I took away, uh, first off, from the, the discussion of luxury is what a loaded word it is. Am I right? I mean, it's a uh, luxury is like one of those words like death, where everybody thinks they know exactly what it means. But when you really investigate it, it's, it's quite difficult, you know, or I think really it should be uh, think about the word love, too. Like, what do we really love or you know, what makes it significant in our lives? So um, um, the the matter that I think was really valuable to uh, to me from Professor Barry is how uh, he, he does give homage to Aristotle, right? And he speaks about uh, uh, the problem that we have today is still an, an Aristotelian uh, uh, problem of categories of uh, what's the good that's being uh, or teleology, I guess, is the word that uh, Professor speaks about. You know, like, uh, have we jettisoned the idea of, of, of a goal to civilization and uh, to people's work? Um, if that's true, then uh, the dominant teleology of Western civilization, though, still has its the mechanism of progress in it. And I think that's an important part to have a discussion about is uh, uh, something of its, of its history. Uh, I'd like to be able to speak to Professor Barry about some of the transitions between he's, he's got an episodic treatment of, uh, of luxury through the ages. And so sometimes you want to, I, I would like to play out where I see a lot of the nuances of transitions from one era to the, to the next from the Roman, for instance, to the Christian, from the Christian to, uh, say, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, from the Enlightenment to today. So uh, those are just a few comments. Well, I, I thank you for that. I mean, a bit of biography, if you like. Um, I got into this subject um, partly through curiosity uh, and partly through being intrigued um, by two things. One. Um, how historically the notion had changed uh, from being something bad to something okay. Uh, what was going on in that transition? And the other thing, it was for me a sort of entree into a, a set of questions that I had uh, given my academic sort of rather vague specialism, which is political thinking. Um, and I thought, look, it was a way of thinking about uh, how societies decide between what's important in their lives and in their policies and in their habits and what we think is less important. Um, and the luxury necessity dynamic in that sense seemed to me to be a, a useful way in um, to, to thinking about those things. So I'm glad in a sense that you saw something like that in your own reading of the book, that this is 
um, that I was trying to delve into those sorts of issues, which very quickly get very deep and big. Um, and of course, I only scratched the surface in certain, in certain points about that. The point about, if I just elaborate a little bit here on the four categories, um, one of the things that I picked them for was because I wanted to use them as universal standards, universal markers of what it means to be human. That human beings, wherever, whenever, in many respects, in all respects, in some places, um, eat, have clothes, live in dwellings, and have this generic term, leisure. Uh, and it's because of that, which is something that comes with the territory being human, that it enables the distinction in luxury and necessity to start work. So luxury comes in as being anchored, as I put it in my remarks just now, to these needs. They're not free-floating. They are ways, they're refinements of what we eat, what we wear, where we live, and what we do with our time. And luxuries is our degrees of refinement of these basic needs. And we have them as individuals or as societies to some extent, but the needs themselves are just categories. There are ways that, that uh, human beings are and how they have organized themselves conventionally into societies. So it was investigating all that complex that the book was about. Now, that you're right about transitions, of course, and I, episodes, I, I duck that question, <laughs> and that's partly deliberately, uh, because otherwise it, 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 blows into, it blows out of proportion. I mean, it, it becomes a history. Um, and there was a, a, a late 19th century French scholar, uh, Baudrillard, uh, who wrote four enormous volumes. They're about, I don't know, I did look, I did sit through and, in the library. Uh, and each volume has got something like 800 pages. And it starts in the Stone Age and ends up in Fin de Siècle Paris. Um, and the thing is just wearying. I mean, it's just like a catalogue. Uh, and I wanted to be more analytical than that, sharper than that. Um, and so the episodic approach was simply to highlight certain highlights uh, of, of the issues. This, this particular episode brings out this to the fore. This episode brings that out to the fore. So the Christians brought out the, the, about, about the notion of sin, for example, and the notion uh, developing the notion of the body in a particular sort of way. It was trying to pick out why these episodes picked on, I used them to try and develop, in a sense, the richness of the ideas, plus the mobility of them. Uh, so Plato was about need and desire. The Romans were about the, the notion of corruption and, and how to prevent corruption. The Christians, I say, were, were about the, the threat of the body and corruption in that sense. Uh, and then to the demoralizing its development towards a change in the concept of nature uh, from a, a straightforward theological notion to a more materialistic uh, notion. It's not why things happen, but how things happen becomes important. Um, the nature is a matter of something, not the final causation of something. And that has links to ethics and has links to um, what I did focus upon is how the importance of trade and commerce develop. And then the chapter on needs was again to think again about needs, where I talk about Marx quite a lot. Then the final part of the book is going back to the, to the, to the sort of categorical discussions 
about what societies value and by looking at what they tax, for example, uh, what the laws are that they pass, what the habits they have, tells you something about that form of society. It's about an identity or grammar, as I call it. So those were the sort of things which I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that you think about. I know we can pick up more specific things later, but as a sort of general response, uh, I'm just, just trying again to indicate uh, why the book uh, is what it is. Um, and it's, in a sense, I'm surprised by its reception, if, to be honest. Uh, uh, I didn't think it would have as much resonance uh, as it clearly has. I just wanted to say that, you know, the, the, when you began the book, and the, the, you, you seem to feel there's a dubiousness about including leisure. Um, and and that's, that's, an, that's an important juncture to speak about because the, um, one of the, the clear modern problems, how we're so different from the classical age, is our relationship with work. Um, and in, in some ways, the way in which... Uh, luxury tries to propose itself is, uh, you know, this uh, satisfaction and fulfillment, a, a sense of measuring your own self-worth by reflecting on it in, in some way in your house or when, you're, when you've, you've, you've stepped away from work. Um, but of course, you know, the, the, um, the Marxists, you know, are interestingly uh, teleological, aren't they? I mean, because they they feel that uh, by, um, you know, taking apart culture and uh, the relationship between, uh, they want they want to to heal. Marx did the the uh, the sins that he rightly spoke about with consumerism. Like, what's it really happening to the common man? And um, but. What Marx brought about was something, you know, a, a very imminent and uh, now it feels almost like a quaint uh, uh, view of work, uh, the man who goes to work. And um, for us today, um, our relationship with work is, is so restless and, and invasive. Obviously now with Zoom, it's, it's really in our homes. You know, we can't really do much to suppress the real part of our, our domestic life. Um, so leisure in, in a way says, well, we'll make a choice. You know, are you, are you, are you working to live or are you living to work? And uh, so that, those are, and that, that's a wonderful uh, way to go back to Aristotle, you know? So Aristotle, when he speaks about virtue, so if he says, if you want to be happy, you have to, virtue is what you need. You need to strengthen yourself to do that, which is going to make you happy. And there's two different categories of virtue, Aristotle says. He says there's, well, there's intellectual virtue and something that, that uh, you might only uh, realize at the end of your life with a very good teacher. You know, you went to a great place and somebody really opened up your mind and you and you worked at it and you have intellectual virtue. Moral virtue, he says, is something quite different. It's something that he insists must happen at the very beginning of life. And moral virtues um, are, you know, he says it in that simple way, which is, uh, well, not so simple for Aristotle, but that 
we're all tempted to have towards pleasure, you know, that you, we work hard and there's things, and, and also we have adversity to pain. And if we're going to do something noble or do something that is worthwhile, we have to confront and overcome pain. And uh, so the moral virtues are things that needs to be uh, instilled into people at a very young age. Where that really impacts us in the modern era is the Rousseauian notion of rights, you know, uh, the, the volonté générale, you know, where the, I'm going to decide what it is that I need to have that's going to make me happy. And um, with, with rights, then you sacrifice the common good. And so in some ways, luxury then points us to a problem that we face in a life. Does it somehow tempt us to separate ourselves from other obligations? Does it, um, what effect does it have really on our culture? A wonderful dialogue right now is about the dialogue of craft. You know, suddenly all these global chains of, of commerce and production have been interrupted during the COVID crisis. We can see how, how vulnerable we are. Well, who knows how to do all these crafts? Um, what about the people that actually work that might be people that are our neighbors? Do they appreciate, you know, what, what they've been working at? If they've been working so hard and they think, are you paying them enough for it? You know, that you have to face that with, a, uh, with, with uh, your neighbor. But with Aristotle, then, the, um, the morals also need, uh, he says, for most people, happiness is associated simply with pleasure, you know, and it's variable because he says if, if you're sick, boy, pleasure would be being healthy, or if I'm poor, you know, pleasure would be, I wish I won the, the lottery or I was rich. He says, then there's another class smaller than that, which wants honors and says, um, I would love it to be, uh, you know, the kids dream about being a uh, football star, uh, this football or the kick kick, whatever. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, they want honors, but they're bestowed on other people. And then Aristotle would say, the highest uh, happiness is one that you do for your own sake. So I'll leave it at that, but it, it was just interesting about the, the way in which luxury works, maybe the experience of luxury then begins to display uh, a spectrum of what that might be, you know, uh, whether, you know, it's uh, Nike always professes that itself is, it's not really a shoe company, it's a marketing company. That's <laughs> a... Yeah, it's the Kellogg's comment, isn't it? That Kellogg is not in the business of making conflicts, but making money. Uh, okay. <laughs> it's the same sort of, you know, uh, image uh, about that. Yes, because Aristotle can be used in all sorts of ways. Um, and, and obviously you, you can adapt uh, the intrinsic instrumental distinction um, in lots of ways. And significantly, I think, possibly in the context of what we're talking about. Uh, I mean, for him, the, the virtue, arete, is, is an excellence of the person. It's an excellence in a way. Uh, so it's, it's being what you can be uh, as your sort of personal telos and isn't to be 
overtaken by, as it were, corporeal matters in the end, because they're less important. Uh, and that develops into sort of post-Hellenic philosophy, uh, into asceticism at one level, but also into a very strict, austere ethic, uh, whereby the pleasure should be eschewed altogether. Uh, and of course, this is one of the transitions that my episodes talk about, is, is how pleasure, in a sense, changes um, in a way. Now, in terms of the, in a way, leisure and work, yes, I mean, that, 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 that is important. Um, and I was trying to use, pick up on leisure because, in a sense, it is, using our student distinction, it is not simply something that's recuperative. It's something that, that in a sense, in, it's an enabling capacity that humans have to have. So all societies have outlets for uh, celebrations, ceremonies, rituals, and so on. These, in, in many ways, are uh, instantiations of and exemplifications of things that they value. And so leisure can be linked very quickly, I think, to some forms of social values. Uh, and they can take the various sort of form. They can take the form, for example, in potlatch of destroying goods. But what potlatch does of these, the, the North American, I think the Northwestern Canadian uh, tribes, uh, make a point of coming together and demonstrating, in a sense, the social solidarity uh, by giving up things. Uh, and the point of that, that, in a sense, is that these are, don't matter. What matters is the fact that we are the tribe, we are we. Uh, and so. It, that, in a way, is where you, they're using the, the stuff of their work to another different end. They're using it in a way of, of social uh, confirmation. Uh, and the, what you touch on towards the end there, in a sense, is, the, is this sort of threat that luxury is supposed to pose to uh, contemporary mores, in a way. Because what it seems to do, certainly by a lot of writers, it seems to sap this, this sense of obligation, this sense of um, community, the sort of bowling alone phenomena that, 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 that sociologist Robert Putnam talked about a while back, that people become privatized. Uh, so luxury is, in a sense, is for me. Uh, and by doing that, the public is neglected. This seems to me, in principle, a sort of contingency in a way. Your, your criticism lies somewhere else, and luxury is simply a manifestation of it. Um, and not a necessary manifestation of it, just as uh, gift-giving can be to the self, but can equally be to others. You can fulfill yourself by making other people happy. Uh, and to reduce that to self-interest is, is, a, is a, a misconception of what's going on. So you can misconceive luxury in some respects, it seems to me, uh, by simply saying that it produces these bad effects but the bad effects are, in a sense, contingencies, it seems to me. Um, and my analysis allows you to, to make that distinction. It doesn't say luxury is good. It doesn't say luxury is bad. It just says that luxury performs in certain societies, certain sort of rules or operations. Uh, and these in different societies are valued differently. Uh, so what counts as you know, luxury in medieval France is building a great cathedral. Not a luxury, that's a necessity. That's a way of demonstrating uh, both our smallness and the grandeur of the universe at one level. Uh, now, and certainly in Britain anyway, churches turn into hotels or they turn into car showrooms uh, and so on, that they use differently. Uh, and now, in fact, we can, we can um, 
preserve church buildings, not because they are, in a sense, because they're aesthetically important. So now what you do in a sense, you say, this is an important building, um, therefore we can tax people, maybe, uh, to maintain the fabric of it. Yeah, that's the point that you made at the end of your book, actually, was do we, with um, maybe in the end of the 90s, there wasn't a lot of funding for housing. And so you're saying, well, do we put our valuable uh, you know, funds towards maintaining medieval churches or do we build homes? Yeah. So you're- that, 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 and that's it. That's what I was trying to say earlier on about where I got interested in, in the topic is how, in a sense, what I call political order or political grammar uh, social grammar works in that way. You can tell about society what it values. Does it, for example, support medieval cathedrals or does it put all its money into building houses for the, yeah. for the others? I'd love to interject at that point about the, you, know, you mentioned about potlatch and uh, in, uh, in a medieval monastery, uh, there was always a, a cloister, right? So the, uh, the cloister is a square um, garden, and it's an image of the Garden of Eden, right? So you 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 were speaking about lapsarian, post-lapsarian uh, uh, desires and pre-lapsarian. So there, that that construct was there in the in the monastery, usually next to the monastery, uh, into the, the garden. The cloister is a chapter room, and uh, um, there was an, it was just an interesting example that um, there was the the rector of uh, of the Duomo in in Florence, Christopher Verdon, an American who's an art historian, um, uh, showed us a, in in one monastery the uh, the chapter room, and he noted that um, in the uh, in Florentine society, you know, at the time of of Dante just before the Renaissance, or maybe where it began. Um, while there was the war between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines, many of the same family members would be there in the monasteries as monks. They could be members that came from an aristocracy. Uh, they'd also be from the poorer classes. They'd all be wearing the same habit. And, and just to sort of what it tells you is that the chapter room was where they, they confessed their faults. It was always right next to the cloister. So it's a place to, to create peace and restore the garden, you know, re restore, I guess, an image of, of luxury is the garden of Eden, you know, the place where you don't have to struggle for the bounty that's in the world um that uh you know so there's there's a an, uh, an image of the work or the renunciation of you know as the monks have poverty chastity and obedience and but then they that gives them an entree into the garden into a place of luxury it's an it's a model that's there um uh for sharing and so in your final um, question, you didn't really answer the question at the, or didn't take one side or the other when it came to the problem of, well, should we 
in, indulge in maintaining medieval churches or build homes? You know, like it's, 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 a, it's a hard question. Um, like, um, so, but in some ways the, the, the medieval church has this idea of maybe there's more of a profusion of wealth in that sharing, you know, the, the, the work of both renouncing and then celebrating. Um, that's a, a theme from Dostoevsky as well, which is the question of um, Boots or Shakespeare, he says. You know, like, the, is it possible that the, the, through the thing that you might think is most unnecessary, like Shakespeare compared to Boots, would be the one that offers the most abundance and uh, real sustenance to the entire human person. Or at Labore. Uh, yeah, or Labore. Yeah, I, I love or Labore. You're right. Yeah, I, think, I don't think that, that I, I'm not. I'm not a legislator, so and, and so I think it's some society will decide differently about. As you know, there's a big debate in, in about Notre Dame burning down. What should we do about it? Yeah. Uh, and that was more because it was a symbol of France than it was a cathedral, it seemed to me, looking at the outside. If you look literally the, all the debate that took, what should we do with Notre Dame since the fire? Uh, most of it seemed to be patriotic mm-hmm. language rather than theological language in many ways. Uh, this, this is an important uh, symbol of France, mm-hmm. uh, and therefore, as a symbol of France, we ought to restore it, uh, not because it was a cathedral as such. Our, that made my personal take. That's how I read that. Our, the Americans, the Supreme Court in America, uh, considered uh, a, a very important case about a about a cross in uh, in Maryland. But during the week, Holy Week of that year, when Notre Dame burned down, or the the roof burned. And they, they considered that issue, which is really, you're, you're right, that the, the issue of symbol, you know, well, well, what is it? Can it be just a church or can it really symbolize France? Or because it transcended France, didn't it? it uh, there were the outpouring actually came outside of France because the reaction where people were, you know, they, they felt it was a, a universal patrimony. But maybe that that is actually the the play of uh, of symbol, which is important in uh, luxury. You know, like it's uh, there was a, uh, a this is an example from James Joyce, where he was speaking about a uh, a meal and uh, of in a very impoverished family, and uh, he said that they hung up the salmon or the fish in the middle of the table and they put potatoes on forks and blessed it, but they didn't eat the salmon. They just ate the, the potatoes. You know, there was, it was something about, they both needed to eat the salmon, but they just ate the potato. Joyce loved those types of images, but you know, it's, it's both, it was, both impoverished and extravagant at the same time, maybe. <laughs> well, that, that's, yeah, and that's luxury in some respects, isn't it? Impoverished and extravagant. Um, because I said the, the notion of magnificence, which I did allude to, and uh, again, is, in a sense, is the way that the public buildings are magnificent, but also clothing is 
magnitude, and a magnificence functions as a symbol in that sense. Um, the example I gave of Holbein's potent portrait of Henry VIII, or the ones of Elizabeth I in particular, even, you know, uh, are simply not, they're not portraits in the sense of this is the person, this is the icon, uh, and what they're doing is demonstrating the uh, uh, importance of the symbolic head, which of course in English Reformation terms is very important because they're also trying to capitalize upon religious imagery at the same time, because they, re they replace the sort of Catholic one with their own version uh, and they need a replacement. So it, it gets devolved onto the figure of the monarch in many ways yeah. to do that. Could I pose a question to you about uh, what I think is the heart of your research? It concerns uh, the role of trade and commerce, right? To uh, to transform luxury from being a vice to the enlightenment uh, virtue, if you will. And uh, you speak about Hobbes, but in that tra transition, it occurred to me there was the Protestant protectorate, you know, of, uh, after the, uh, the, the killing of, uh, of regicide of Charles I in Whitehall. So Hobbes, of course, was, you know, uh, uh, the Leviathan was Cromwell, you know, and of course uh, Cromwell was a very sturdy and important stabilizing figure in English history, uh, not in Irish history. It was very, <laughs> <laughs> we have a different take on Cromwell, um, Irish. And uh, so, but with Leviathan, the, uh, the shock, I think, um, to English history, they, they, they brought back the king, and and you you speak about Mandeville, about Bernard Mandeville coming over from Holland, and uh, but he came during that Augustan period with the uh, the restoration of Charles II, and uh, the restoration of uh, of theater in 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 England and of the arts and luxuries are suddenly available. And uh, so some of the satirical vein that he writes in The Fable of the Bees yeah, emerges from that worldview of a very destabilized time with, uh, with, um, with the, the, the Protestant protectorate of Cromwell. Um, of course, the, the, the spokesman that is... Uh, not that that is not mentioned uh, is Milton, you know Milton, you know really that was probably the motivation for Paradise Lost. You know, is to think about what like Shakespeare with this idea of the fallen king, um, and, and Lear. What do we do with this fallen world? This loss of a garden? Is England the Garden of Eden? Um, uh, all those poets that, that came out afterwards, you know, were meditating on that, and uh, even up until Blake. So go ahead. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that the the focus that uh, in that on the on the, the the trade stuff was because debates then focused upon um, in, in many ways, but there were partly economic debates, but the economic debates were, were very closely aligned to the moral debates because one of the 
sort of views was that money spent on luxury was wasted money. What we should be doing it was, in a sense, is supporting home industry, for example, and not importing silks and finery and things from from abroad because we were losing bullion. And then there was a big debate about got very technical in some respects about what interest rates were and what bullion would mean uh, and so on and so forth. And in so doing, people developed, and I talk about this in, in the book, uh, a different then notion of happiness becomes not the Aristotelian notion of happiness. It becomes in, in one level enjoyment. Uh, and what's wrong with enjoyment is the implicit subtext for that. Uh, and the fact that it produces what we would now call GDP. In other words, that and it comes in the 18th century more developed, that the poorest in society will be less poor because of industry. And industry will be motivated by luxury goods, in part, and also by international trade. And the effect of these, the, the utility of this, the utility of luxury in that sense, is it produces a better life in terms of the material of, our, of, the, four, of the four needs. In other words, people eat better, have better housing, warmer clothes, and have more opportunities to, in a sense, um, enjoy themselves. And all of these are pluses that come from casting off the negative disapproval um, that luxury, in some sense, is bad and wasteful. And it's that, that's, the, that's the transition period that I talk about. And from that, you get a different set of values, obviously, that comes about in terms of what, what's important. Uh, to to societies, yeah. Well, in in some ways, the uh, uh, that economic worldview is with all of it is uh, you, if you were to compare uh, the world of Milton and and that world that followed him, you'd say that uh, Milton was the last epic voice of England. You know, he began to really think of England, you know, as a as building the city, you know, the, the new Jerusalem. And then afterwards those voices become economic voices and they're they're shattered and uh, they're 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 imminent and material and and compelling. There are a lot of humus is uh, is very compelling, you know, is about trying to bring about the, the material goods. And, and certainly it, it happened that there was all these, uh, uh, the, that industrial society happened in England and uh, I guess France as well, but England first, right? And uh, um, the urbanization of England happened first. And m- maybe that's an important thing is to see from that point of where of the 18th century England, what what happened? You know what what uh, um, what in, what ensued from it? You know that uh, uh, urbanization certainly is so uh, is if if you think about the uh, goals of the Enlightenment is that we're going to be all one world, and so trade certainly has that. It's it's not epic like before like Milton but one world okay and um, and then the world also has become 
uh, urbanized, right? The, I think 2004 was the time when the or more half the world's population for the first time became urbanized. Uh, I was, you know, with the uh, and with urbanization is part of the underlying dialogue about luxury, right? You know that. Yeah, I mean there there is a. Um one of the laments of the tax on luxury in the 18th century is worries about that. The, 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 the poem by Goldsmith, Deserted Village, which is precisely the fact that we were losing these uh, bucolic but virtuous lifestyles and people are flocking into cities and getting corrupted uh, by flesh pots and drugs and the whole Garthian image that you get of, uh, of London. Uh, in all, in a sense, the regs, power of progress, the regs progress are all, in a sense, uh, illustrations, literally, <laughs> of wrong when you've got a lack of uh, traditional moral code. And villages were meant because they were smaller communities, you had the self-policing went on, often, often very repressive. So in the Scots case, that was, that was the... the uh, Presbyterian Church in Scotland was notorious in the sense for um, for keeping the the uh, congregation, should we say, under very strict controls uh, and re reproving all you know uh, enjoyment in the sort of standard Calvinist way uh, that it was done. And there's a insistent reaction against uh, that luxury was therefore attacked for that. But then look, the people came along and said, "Look, this is better. This is just going to be a better life." Then you could find a field all day long. I was wondering if you guys could talk a little bit more about desire um, and the role of desire in the idea of luxury, um, particularly from maybe an emotional condition and a response to it, but also uh, as a spiritual and perhaps evolutionary mechanism. Well, I'll, I'll start because I talk a lot about desire. Um, well, desire, in a sense, is, is partly, as I said, an epistemic philosophical argument. We use the word colloquially, and this is true all uh, European languages I'm familiar with, that needs and wants can be used interchangeably. But in a sense, you can, there's a semantic difference between them. Desires are, in a sense, true of us as things that we know we want. Um, the, the, they are, they are in, intentionalistic. Uh, you know, you know you want something, but you don't know you need something. There is that epistemic difference. Now, how that bears out is, is for me anyway, in a sense, it give, gives you a dynamic because luxury will, will change uh, as people's desires change and desires can be amendable um, by definition. You might want a pint of beer, um, but then you see it's flat, or then you see there's some cider, then you remember you're, you're having a, a dry January, so you don't drink the desire. So the desire is, is amendable in that way. So luxuries are always amendable desires. Now, the whole de debate about desire, which I, I, I confessed I didn't go into, um, they're, 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 they're black boxes as far as I'm concerned. The, the desires are, are things that um, people could want. Now, we all know that societies exist um, partly to facilitate desires and partly to police desires. Uh, and that, that's always a, a balancing act. Cromwell's policing of desires, as it were, were rather different than Charles II's uh, English king's policing of desires. Uh, and that's partly what, what's going on in, in, in society's point of view. So I haven't got a view as to what 
um, the end or object of, of desire is. In luxuries, I say it's linked, crudely speaking, to bodily satisfactions derived from the four needs. Uh, but you can have desires, and I think Andrew was pointing this out with the extend the notion of leisure to say this includes uh, not materialistic goods, but also uh, non materialistic goods. As contemporary literature and luxury now talks increasingly about, it was an experience. Luxury is an experience, um, not simply a, a Rolex watch. Uh, it's an experience of some sort or other. Uh, therefore, desires are. Are sort of fluid and elastic. Um, I haven't got, a, in a sense, a, a view that desires have an end in that sense. They have the end that's determined by the desirer. Uh, and some ends are innocent and some ends are not innocent. Um, the person wants to rob you of your Rolex watch. It's not got an innocent desire, but it's got a desire uh, to do it. This is pertinent to the, to the question of desires about thoughts of, of luxury, of worship. Um, sometimes it's, it's hard for us to, you know, expand our scope of thinking about, you know, this is my personal desire and, but worship is also deals with collective desire or collective, you know, it's, uh, uh, the word liturgy means the work of worship. And so, uh, when we go into the church, um, there's work involved. And so, for our own church after uh, Vatican II in, in the Catholic Church in, in the United States, we had, uh, well, we wanted to change things around. And so, so many things were done so quickly and so cheaply that it was uh, deeply unnerving to people to see, you know, that's the church that my father and grandfather sacrificed for uh, so much. But we began to think that we wanted to give people uh, they, you know, basic necessities. And we focused a lot on the works of charity. And, uh, but I do feel that now I'm in a, a poor parish, if you will. It's an old one in New York. Um, but the, uh, uh, we're just installing, even today, a uh, little bronze artwork made in London uh, by, with, with Chris Knight. And um, the work of making something beautiful is uh, extremely central to the lives of the poor, um, both the elderly, more understandably, but also the young. Um, that's, you know, why should you, there was, we just recently made a chasuble, but it was a, a very poor woman who had saved for a long time, this uh, jacquard, you know, a beautiful golden jacquard that she, she said, can we make it into a chasuble that I wear in the, so um, it was, it was beautiful. And, and of course it, you know, she didn't benefit from it directly other than the fact that she knows that it's being worn for everyone's benefit. And that seems to be uh, very important. Uh, for people as to this shared uh, desire. Um, you wonder, of course, the problem of the word desire is it, it's closely linked to, uh, or is it love? You know, like when we say that we love something, do, you know, that there are some things that, like 
Cupid's arrows, one's lead and one's golden. Some things, some people just are enamored by something and others repulsed by it. Um, so the instability of human desires is something that is only moderated through ways in which people are collected together. Um, and there's actually very few venues now for people to be uh, collected, you know, mostly. And the, to me, to my mind, actually, that makes the, maybe the one real luxury of worship is that people can really be together that are not just from a very limited society, but are from the wider and unpredictable communion of human beings. So... I mean, there's a link between, uh, if I could just int- one of that I was thinking of then in a sense about not being individual, like sporting arenas, for example, um, you desire that your team does well. Right. Uh, and part of that is because you're not alone in that. There is a, a, a group of supporters and part of who you are, for some people, is identified by the fact I'm a supporter of New York Yankees or uh, Tottenham Hotspur or, or whatever. Uh, and that, in a sense, clues into the notion of identity. Um, and that if you feel very fervent about something, um, then it becomes, in the way I analyze it, becomes a sort of subset of this personal necessity. But you become part of a bigger whole. And that's part, of course, is what the worship means, in a way. That you, you, you've been sent, don't lose yourself, but you, you find a better self, in, in ideal terms, yeah. <laughs> about who you are when you're with people of a like disposition. I, I love the song Jerusalem in England, which uh, it seems to trend. It's, you know, sung in rugby matches and football matches. And, uh, but it, it's got patriotic fervor to it. But really, it's, it's an intensely religious song. It is. That, uh, you know, deals with, uh, honestly, about the, the satanic mills the legacy yeah. of the problem of industrialization. So yeah, there is an argument that when Blake write, writes that satanic mills, he means churches. He means as it were the official church. <laughs> so with the present day idea of luxury being based on a business model, how will luxury evolve to be more inclusive and democratic in the future? So a question there about the future of luxury. Mm-hmm. I could have a long answer to that, <laughs> um, which is to say that um, I, I, many ways, I, I don't. Well, the future of luxury looks after itself. I, I haven't really got a, a crystal ball, and I, I wouldn't pretend to have a crystal ball as to what the future is. I'm, I'm skeptical of the rather uh, loose use of words like democratization uh, when it comes to luxury. It seems to me at best it's a façon de parler uh, that's to do with it, uh, and it, it's, it's to do with versatile access and what are the barriers to access, and what extent they are barriers, who is being excluded and who's not being excluded. Um, all these seem to me to be questions which uh, are sort of rather brushed under the carpet by saying, well, let's make things called affordable luxuries or whatever. Uh, and the debate on the head of a pin is, are these really luxuries not, or is it true luxury, meta luxury, or whatever it develops. So I'm, I'm slightly sort of, uh, let's say dyspeptic <laughs> uh, about that sort of language and plus I, I eschew any uh, ideas to what the future of luxury is i just don't know and in many deep respects i don't care uh, 
Um, well, I'd, I'd say the uh, um, the business, the problem, I guess, of of, of blending, you know, uh, something that's uh, incalculable, incalculable, and uh, sublime, uh, which which luxury may point to about uh, human life is um, is difficult from the point of view of a of a business, you know, where you're you're if you're the main motivation, of course, is to sustain your your uh, to have a profit, you know, and uh, um, I don't think there, I don't think the the society is in the work of you know charity to businesses, or I, I think it's hard to to put it in, but I you know I. Um, I think, though, that the the role of the state needs to be uh, cultivated um, for, uh, in particular, for crafts. You know, I think the big issue with with trade and commerce, which is even a present debate, is about what do you do about protectionism? Does it isn't isn't that really defeating the ultimate ro- robustness of an economy? If you have, uh, you know, too much protectionism, um, you know, the uh, uh, I, th- I, I, I don't know, but I, I do think the uh, uh, the the problem of luxury and the and the world of crafts is an issue that needs to be addressed. That the uh, you know craftsmen are people that. Uh, they learn their crafts over a long period of time. There's something deeply mysterious about it. And there is both high culture and low culture and craft probably is part of low culture, even though it can go into high culture. Um, but crafts, the knowledge of crafts can be lost. And so, uh, the, uh, it's the, the, Maybe it's the education of the consumer, or that's that's part of the mystery. I'm just giving conjecture about it. Uh, I know that uh, uh, Professor Manlo has spoken about uh, uh, Bernard uh, Arnaud of uh, of Louis Vuitton, and uh, I'm I'm not up on all the uh, uh, what is it Hennessy Louis Vuitton, but but that they want to. Uh, to change their own business model to be um, uh, one where they the benefit art for art's sake. You know, those are uh, wonderfully French uh, ideals and they're probably suspect too because it's the, 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 the business model still needs to be maintained. I think this, uh, this debate or this talk actually is the basic title is about the virtue or uh, is, is luxury a virtue or a vice? And, um, you know, uh, I guess if I would say anything that, that luxury is an, like, a, like an er temptation, as Dante puts it in the, in the, um, in the inferno before he even gets to any of the sins. It's, it's the one thing that's kind of, illusions about ourselves, etc., often defeat our ability to gain perspective and destiny. So um, 
pride and 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 Chris has really been good about saying what's well, it's not only about luxury there's other culprits out there you know like let's uh, uh, the you were saying about third world so um, uh, but you know I would say that the uh, we do need to be honest about overcoming what really is an, a temptation the vice of luxury is something that defeats the collective work of the good. Um, the virtue of it, I think, also is to say, which is very deeply Christian, is, um, you know, it's, it's not just moderating your own desires, but it's also preparing yourself for a superabundance that God gives us in the incarnation. So in somehow that's really important to cultivate hope for human beings with objects that are not just expensive, but resplendent with something deeply meaningful. Um, or even if it's, you said, it doesn't have to be the, the Michelin dinner, but, uh, but just a, a good dinner that sometimes people do gather around and enjoy. So anyway. So thank you very much, Andrew, for your comments um, and for taking part in this discussion today. It's been very illuminating and quite fascinating. I've learned a lot of things um, that are outside of my usual, you know, purveyance. Um, but Chris, do you have anything you'd like to just uh, add at the end there? Uh, you've, heard, you've heard too much of me already, I think, really. Uh, I want to thank Andrew for, for the conversation, which has been very interesting. And, and like all conversations, it, it takes you places you perhaps weren't thinking you were going to go. So I thank him for that. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to have the conversation. No, that was excellent. I, I didn't feel the need to jump in with too many questions because uh, I was fascinated by what you were discussing and it went in a direction I wasn't certainly would either. Uh, Sean, would you like to, to, to jump in now? Yes. Um, well, thank you both. That was, um, as we expected, an amazing and insightful talk. And thanks to James for doing such a sterling job in um, getting things moving and generating a really interesting conversation. Thank you, Father Andrew and Chris, and thanks to our partners, Intellect Books, and thank you for listening. Join us next time on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast.